0: You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network.
1: Hi, this is Ralph Macchio, and you are listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Epic Marvel Podcast. In fact, this is the first episode of the Epic Marvel Movie Special. And uh, I am your host, Curtis Finley, and with me today are two of my friends, uh, Steve and Doug Ferguson. Hi, guys.
2: Hey, how's it going? Everybody? Hello, hello.
1: Well, this is exciting because this is our first episode of of a special new segment of the Epic Marvel Podcast, which we are calling the Epic, movie, sorry, the Epic Marvel Movie Special Podcast. And my idea that I came to you guys with was that I wanted to talk about Marvel movie adaptations, movies that Marvel has done adaptations for. And you two guys are big movie buffs, so I thought that you two would be great to, to, uh, to kind of take the reins of this podcast and uh, get it going. So, I'm glad that you're here with me.
2: Oh, yeah, no, it's great to be here. um I've always been fascinated by film adaptations and comic form to be honest uh it's it's kind of an interesting art because there's so many restrictions but also so many freedoms so I mean any opportunity to, to dive into these is this medium is is always a fantastic ride
0: yeah i've always um I've only read a few uh movie adaptations, but it's always been. I don't know it's always left a bit of an impression because it is interesting to see where the differences are and and what works and what doesn't and and what translates from one medium to the next.
1: One of the earliest movie adaptations that I can remember reading was in the pages of Disney's Adventures magazine. You remember that? <laughs> oh yes, I do. There's a Lion King special when that movie first came out in 94, and Disney's Adventures ran a two-part Lion King movie adaptation uh, across two issues of that magazine, and I loved it. I ate it up, because at that time, like, that was, like, we didn't have the internet readily available to all of us, and even when we did have it, it wasn't very great so it was like this was our chance to to relive the movie over and over again and before the vhs came out and like i used the pictures to draw from and and all that kind of stuff i loved it
0: i actually i have read the same one i i remember uh very distinctly actually and i didn't even think about that because the one i remember thinking of was uh i had a uh Spider-Man, uh, of the, first, the first movie, the first uh, Sam Raimi movie. Sam Raimi yeah, movie. that's right. I, I had uh, the it was like a one thick one volume Spider-Man movie adaptation, which uh, was well. I guess maybe well, we'll probably talk about that one day. Huh? <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, we yeah we probably will. I mean that Marvel did make that one. They they tend to not do that anymore though, in favor of doing prequel stories. Yeah. Uh, they, yeah, they'll they'll do the they won't release the movie adaptation, but they'll have a story that takes place before the movie to lead into the movie because I guess people will buy it. Yeah, I I don't I don't know. The, the way of the movie adaptation is kind of gone, I think.
2: Yeah, uh, I I mean certainly the Star Trek graphic novels have been kind of kind of that way lately. Um and I think it even dates back to Matrix, if I recall, did did a bunch of those as well.
0: Well, the um, yeah. Matrix, it was like uh, it was almost like uh, the Animatrix where it was uh, sort of like more side stories not, not a prequel, it was like all in the same universe but it was unique stories mm-hmm. within them.
1: Right well, I think it also has to do with the, just the state of uh, of home media because uh, it's just a matter of months before the the movie's out in either digital form or available to us on Blu-ray for us to watch over and over again it used to be that you'd have to wait almost a full year before it came out on on VHS. Yeah, that's right.
2: Yeah. So I guess in a way, reading the adaptation was just like uh, priming yourself again for. Oh, I remember when this happened in the movie. Mm. You know, oh, I can't wait yeah. to see the movie again.
1: And early on, back in the '70s, when when a lot of these like movie adaptations are nothing new. Dell Comics was doing movie adaptations like in the '40s, but uh, when Marvel did the Star Wars movie adaptation in six parts. Half of the adaptation came out before the movie was even released, (laughs) Um, and they were using it as a promotional tool. There's no way that would happen nowadays um, because of all the spoilers and such, but uh, that was the case.
2: Hmm. Mm -hmm, Very true.
1: So, in this episode... We are going to be talking about Labyrinth. I asked you guys what movie should we start with, and you chose Labyrinth. And it was originally published a- as part of Marvel Comics Super Special Magazine number forty in October of 1986. And then a few months later, it was serialized as a three-issue mini-series. So yeah, um, Labyrinth. What do you guys think of this movie? When did when did you first see Labyrinth?
2: Oh geez, I I was really young when I saw it. Um... I was huh, I was definitely younger than ten the first time I saw this movie, definitely. Nice. Um, but you know, it's one of those one of those movies I grew up with. So like trying to like pin down when exactly I first saw it is uh, uh, is very very tricky. Um, but you know, as as one of those films, you know, you have when you're growing up, there's always those sort of impressions that you have where you anticipate certain scenes and you remember the atmosphere more than the dialogue and and uh, and stuff like that. And uh, uh, labyrinth. Um, I always had such a tremendous soft spot for Jim Henson and still do have a tremendous soft spot for Jim Henson and uh, labyrinth um, labyrinth is one of those benchmark movies in my mind, which may or may not be, you know, justifiably earned, you know, in some ways. Yeah. In some ways, eh, maybe, maybe it hasn't his age as well, but uh, I mean, Oh, even rewatching as an adult, so many more themes and stuff that you can actually pick out of it.
1: What do you mean by a benchmark movie? Is that a benchmark for Jim or a benchmark for you? Um, I would say for both. I mean, there's a there's a level of expressiveness that that you can get out of the
2: puppets to be honest which uh, um, I think really Henson was the master of uh, and that's you know a, a lot of other a lot of other people in that industry um, would have to try to live up to. And uh, certainly in terms of of balancing the tone and the material i feel like the storytelling was was very very on point um for a movie that's that you know you could argue is a kid's movie maybe it isn't such a kid's movie maybe at times it's a little dark and creepy i I mean i guess not unlike not unlike the never any story but i'd say the puppet work is far better in labyrinth than in never any story and i love never any story (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, I agree with that.
0: You know, it's interesting because we never had this movie as a kid. I wonder when you saw it because mm-hmm. um, I never, I, I didn't see it when I was a kid. I think I may have saw pieces on TV every now and then, but I didn't actually watch *Labyrinth* from start to finish until I was probably in my early twenties, maybe late late teens. Really, that's yeah. interesting. Uh, and I remember being kind of taken by it, but also in some ways sort of disappointed of what I like imagined it would be mm-hmm. when I was when I was younger because I, I, I you know you, you see pieces or you see stills and your um, your imagination goes crazy mm-hmm. and um, and the, just seeing the whole thing um, I mean I, I you know it was there's a sort of it's a, I mean this movie it's a little bit contrived <laughs> for sure <laughs> but um, but at the same time I really admired the amount of imagination and I, I do still see what exactly what Jim Henson was going for when he made it and i think the more i sat on it the more i respected it and enjoyed it but it's actually the first my first impression of the film wasn't like i wasn't blown away mm-hmm. but i was but i i have come to really like admire it just because i i because of all the the interesting little pieces and and um and just i don't know the cleverness and the and the ingenuity of of how it looks and and how it feels even though like you know it, it's it's a very imperfect movie sure yeah but you know i then again
2: they they were stretching though they were really trying like the scene with the the dancing those uh dancing oh what were they called fire uh, site well, the guys who take their heads off yeah yeah um <laughs> like that looks pretty bad today but they were being audacious, and they were they were trying. They, they they kept pushing the envelope and trying and trying and trying. And from you know, you watch some of the behind the scenes stuff, and from a a, choreo, a choreography standpoint, it's very impressive what they're trying to do. But the the technology just wasn't quite ready for it. Um, and uh, that, in a lot of ways, kind of summarizes the movie uh, for me. In, in a lot of ways, is that it's so ambitious, so ambitious. And eh, sometimes the the tech wasn't quite ready for it. But in other times, other times, absolutely. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, I was, uh, I think, in my 20s when I first saw it. My parents did not, they're not movie-going people or anything like that. We didn't really have movies around the house or anything like that. So, so growing up, I didn't watch Labyrinth, but I loved The Muppets. So, we would watch Muppets as a family um, in the evenings when it was on. And I, I absolutely loved Jim Henson. And so, when I, you know, got to be an age when I was able to rent movies by myself and such i saw labyrinth and i was like i gotta watch this and i loved it and it it is one of these movies that sticks with you and i just when i was watch when i rewatched it for this podcast i watched it with my boys first time that they've watched it oh. and at first and so they are seven and nine and at first they're like, we don't want to watch it because it's old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, it's like, oh man, how old is this movie? I guess it's like thirty years old. Yeah. Um, and but then we got into it, and they had a great time. They had a really great time watching it. it. It it held up for them. It they didn't they they forgot that it was thirty years old, and just really got engaged and loved it. So. I think it's worth uh showing to other kids and and keeping the the movie in the public eye. It didn't do well when it first came out. No. It's a cult classic now. You know, it's it's
2: interesting too because there's a lot of uh there's a lot of strange sort of trivia things behind it too. Um I mean the 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 first thing that always uh, that always uh captures my attention was the lead choreographer was uh Cheryl Mcfadden also known as Gates Mcfadden Dr. Beverly Crusher from Star Trek the Next Generation really oh yeah yeah yes yeah. um and but and there's so many so many interesting details about the movie too which which makes the the making of just spellbinding you know the the whole scene where he's uh, Jareth is balancing the glass globe the crystal globe on his fingertips and it's actually yeah. one of the production guys with his arm stuck through but because he can't quite see it properly he's having a harder time than usual and uh, i mean there's just <laughs> just just so many interesting things that are going on in this movie and, and it's such a passion project there was i mean they didn't need to do the globe balancing. thing they didn't need to do that it didn't contribute to the script but it contributed to the atmosphere you know and and that was that was something that that was foremost on their minds when they were making this movie it's just like like the complete package it's like, how can we create such a tangible world that, that people can kind of be absorbed into?
1: Well, I hope you point more of those uh, cool stories out to us as we go through the, through the issues here, because uh, I'd love to hear more if you have them. <laughs> well, normally, I would say before we head on to the issues, let's hear from our, our listeners. But this is the first episode, and I tried to get some listener comments, but nobody gave me anything worth talking about. Everybody was like, oh... I have some other movie adaptations, but not that one. Or oh, okay. I, haven't, I haven't seen Labyrinth, so I can't really comment on that. So, not useful, guys. Come on. <laughs> All you listeners out there, make sure you, uh, li- you watch the movie uh, when we announce what the next one's going to be. So, having said that... Mm-hmm. Why don't we move on to our, uh, our issues here? Now, we're going to follow the same method as I would in a regular Epic Marvel podcast episode, and we'll go issue by issue to talk about the movie. Uh, in, it's in three parts, because this is a three-issue limited series, so we'll just talk about the movie in three parts. Um, but I think it's also worth noting I mentioned this earlier that this was originally published all in one part as a large form graphic novel kind of uh, magazine format comic, uh, Marvel Super Special number forty. Marvel Super Special, uh, pretty much exclusively did movie adaptations, um, and uh, and I read I reread both of these just to see if there was any differences. There are a few things here and there, nothing huge. But the biggest thing to notice is that the Marvel super specials were colored because they were magazine. They were able to color these in like full process color. So there's a lot more kind of ink washes and, and really nice kind of watercolor work in the coloring. Whereas when they, they serialized it after as in the three parts, they had to go back to the four color printing. And so the color is not quite as spectacular. Still looks good but not quite as spectacular.
2: Yeah, that was something I noticed. Um, and it's, it's kind of a pro pro and con sort of deal with, uh, um, with having it in this format, honestly, because on the one hand, yeah, you get, you do get genuine depth in the illustrations. And I, and I felt it was, it really, it really added to it. But then also when you have this story um, compressed into one volume, uh, truthfully, The story feels feels more rushed. Uh, Mm -hmm. So as you're going through and you're reading it, you're like, "Wow, she spent 13 hours, really? (laughs) You know, what what was she doing (laughs) for all that time? Because I mean, she's just walking around looking sad."
1: So you're you're saying there's a psychological aspect when you're breaking the issue into the three parts oh, that makes absolutely. it feel longer. Yeah, okay, absolutely. Yeah. Um,
2: you know, I mean, if you're waiting, if you've, you've read one issue and you're waiting for the next one to come out, you have time to kind of revisit it. You have time to to kind of like think back to think back to it. Maybe you're talking to your friends and you're and you're saying, oh, you know, I, I picked this up. What do you think? Some of your friends say, oh, this is lame. Your other friends are like, oh, this is pretty cool. You know, what do you like about it? You know, um, but if you pick up just just the whole package by itself, I mean, that's it, right? It's, it's just the one thing you kind of take it as it is and uh and naturally there's a page limit right there's there's only so much they can stick in so you you can't you feel the limits
1: that's very interesting now i am going to be interviewing i wasn't able to do it in time for this episode but i'm going to be interviewing ralph macchio not the karate kid but there's an editor at marvel comics whose name is ralph macchio and he wrote a lot of these adaptations he didn't do this one but um but I'm going to be talking to him about what it's like to adapt a movie into comic form uh, and see what he has to say. So that interview should be coming in the next few weeks so you can keep your eyes on the podcast for that. Exciting. Okay, so issue number one. Um, This is the story of uh, Sarah, and she wishes that her, her little baby brother who she can't stand, she's got a in her typical teenage um, attitude, she she feels like she has a, a really hard life and doesn't want her baby brother around. She has to babysit him. So she wishes the baby to be taken by the goblins and then he is and she tries to get him back and has the only way she can do that is making her way through a labyrinth to the castle that's at the center of the labyrinth in 13 hours. Otherwise, um, the goblin king gets to keep the baby. So this issue takes us all the way up into the point where she comes across the two guys. One can tell the truth and one who can only lie. And then she—and then the issue ends at that point. So, what do you uh, what are your thoughts about this first third of the movie?
0: Well, I, um, I noticed right away that there actually is a lot of time for the setup. I kind of, because in the movie itself, it feels the setup feels very rushed. Um, where interestingly enough, in this comic adaptation, it seems like they they kind of break it down almost beat for beat, and so it. it but in this form, with uh, as many like volumes and even in, in just how long it goes on in this particular uh, first part, um, it does take up a fairly substantial amount of time for the setup. So actually, it doesn't feel it actually feels less rushed, and kind of interestingly enough, um, than it does in the movie.
1: I think that has to do partly with um with just the fact that because you are reading you can read this at your own pace mm. whereas the movie locks you into the pace that it wants you to be to to experience
0: yeah and i think i think the movie's the it's for starting pace isn't great like it is it's really fast because um, i think i think they just wanted to get into the labyrinth as fast as possible because that was where the most interesting stuff happened Um, But I guess they felt they needed to cover all these points, Um, which is, I mean, I guess, I mean,
2: when I was reading it, it it flowed pretty nicely. So I guess they did. I think in part, I think so. What what helps this is the cover page, because um, the cover page from the get go, you have this 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 shot of Sarah being haunted by this ghostly figure with creatures in a bedroom. So if you're picking this up for the first time and you don't actually know what the story is about and you just start. You know, the first couple pages is a girl being a little weepy for no reason. Uh, I mean, you think back to your first page, the cover page, and you're like, oh, wait, but I know that something's going to go down. I know something's going to go down, so you have a little more time because the reader's already kind of hooked from the title. Page. Right.
1: Yeah, that's a good point.
2: Uh, I will admit, though, I'm having a really hard, as you probably can tell, I'm having a really hard time sympathizing with Sarah. Uh, her stepmother's like, you should, you should get out more. And she's just like, you don't care. And they're like, well, you're an hour late and it's a storm outside. And she's just like, you don't care. And the dad's like, uh, I love you, sweetheart. Can I talk to you? And she's like, go away. And he's like, okay. And then she's like, why did he leave? <laughs> and and I was just like, what do, what do you want, Sarah? <laughs> what do you want out of life?
1: But I think that's the, that's the, the key point here is, uh, that I think is that she's an unlikable character at the beginning. Mm. But then she, throughout the course of the movie, she turns into a likable character through her own growth and, you know, self-realization and such. I think that's a key thing, is that they do treat her as a whiny, bratty, spoiled, rotten teenager.
2: I guess it also speaks testament, going back to the film, to Jennifer Connelly, um, because even when, because, I mean, really, she was acting the same way in the film, but it felt very human. With her, yeah. So I mean, that now naturally, how do you convey that on yeah, the page? Yeah. That's a little when you touching. have to when you have to read it. Yeah, you're like, this is terrible. But
0: you're right; it is a testament to her acting ability to even like to make her even a little bit likable at the beginning, mm-hmm. given that these this is basically the same dialogue, it's or I guess more monologue with her just like going, "Oh, woe is me," because she
2: she lo- <laughs> she she looks like like she's a bit of a she's a bit of a wreck. She looks like she's not fully committing to the things that she's saying. Um, but she's frustrated with herself and, and her, her, her situation, uh, which, you know, to the layperson is like, you know, well, what are you complaining about? But to her, it seems very real. Um, and, and you know what? I don't envy any writer or illustrator who's like, I got to capture this performance on the page, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But they did, you know,
0: although they did a pretty good job of capturing her likeness. Her likeness. Sure. Yeah. Um, and you know, the vest. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but what else can you do? You can capture her likeness and you can write the dialogue, but you can't make the reader perform like the actress would unless they've seen the movie and they just can kind of imagine it that yeah. way. So it's, that's just the, the nature of the beast here.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: One of the things that I didn't think that this comic did very well was the revelation that uh, the baby has been taken. Yeah. Because it's just one panel and he's gone, whereas the movie really builds up an actual kind of frightening scenario where the baby stops crying and she like slowly moves to the crib. And it's like a horror movie. And uh, I, and I love that scene. It hits me because, you know, I'm a parent as well. And like I would be freaked out if my kid all of a sudden went from crying to to zero crying and then the baby was disappeared and i don't think that that same sort of horror came across um well enough in the comic
2: yeah no i'd agree with that i'd agree with that um and actually likewise to be honest um even at the very beginning there was a, a degree of chemistry i found um between jareth and and sarah that i felt was a little lacking here he just kind of seems like a uh just kind of like a creepy, creepy imposing figure. Um, whereas Bowie was able to also portray a, a degree of softness, and and there was there was a sternness, but an affection,
0: and and mm. and he had that sort of uh, you know the Bowie charm. Yeah, yeah, he, yeah. He, he, you know, he he was he just was naturally charismatic. Um, yeah, but again, yeah, that's also the same deal where it's like they you you look at the drawing and you go like, hey, that kind of looks like David Bowie. Um, but um, but you can't necessarily capture that performance.
2: Yeah. yeah.
1: There are a few things that I like in here that uh, is specific to the comic medium. Uh, there's the scene where she's in the process of wishing Toby away, and there's the one page, or there's the one panel where she is surrounded by, the the panel is surrounded by the goblins yes she's holding up Toby and the 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 box is colored kind of pinkish and then the goblins all around because there's the if you remember the scene in the movie it cuts it does these these really great kind of jump cuts to these to the goblins who are in goblin world or whatever looking somehow looking in on what she's doing um and then it goes right back to what she's doing but so they convey that by having them kind of interacting with the panel and I think that's really cool very specific to the comics
2: yeah it's such a strength of the medium to be honest it's such a strength of graphic novels to be able to to play with frames like that Uh, i mean i I know i've seen some films that try to duplicate that but it's it never never pops like it does with uh in the comic form you know and and it's definitely like something that
0: it it just required just a little bit of out of the box, I guess literally, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, thinking. Where, uh, yeah, I mean, I, if I were just doing a straight up adaptation, I wouldn't have that. Wouldn't have occurred to me to do that. Um, but all it took was just somebody to go, like, "Hey, this is a cool idea. Is that here's how we can portray it?" And yeah, it is something that you can only kind of be done in comics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I, that that part really stuck out to me, stuck out to me as well.
1: Uh, there are a few parts here that don't work as well. I'm thinking of the optical illusion of the, the wall. Oh yeah. the this, this secret yeah. path. yeah. Such that, a cool moment the, in the movie.
2: That really requires, to be honest, I think a, a camera, um, yeah. because it like, it, it just does because you're, you're a hundred percent right. It's, it's an optical illusion. It's, uh, it's the camera playing tricks on you. Um, and actually I think they really kind of just skip that part entirely. Right. They just say the, the worm she's talking to is, it just says, Oh, look over, uh, Look over there. There's actually a way, in, and you don't even yeah. you don't even see the blank wall or anything. It's just like oh, it's almost like she just didn't look. <laughs> you know, there you know, there could
0: have been a way they could have done it, but it would just require a few more frames where it's just like sort of like you see a wall. Maybe she puts her arm through or something like that, and then you can sort of see like oh, the wall isn't what it looks like. But no, they just. I mean, maybe it's because they knew they had, like, limited panels and stuff to work with, but it does kind of feel like they didn't even try.
2: So it makes me wonder, then, why do it? There could have been another... Like, I'm not saying just have her just walk around the maze, but there could have been, like, another kind of trickery um, that didn't require a camera effect, per se. Um, Like, the adaptation doesn't have to be... Like 100% faithful. I get I get a little irked when I see adaptations of any kind, like whether it's from book to film, or or film to comic, or or anything that feels like it has to be 100%. Why not just you know change it around so it's a different kind of illusion one that one that the 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 medium actually can really pull off. Okay, or like maybe it, it looks like she has to like
0: flip over like one of the pictures, or I don't know, like. how do do i even explain it Uh, but but like yeah it's like having like one of the one of the frames because like she could like it looks like she's pushing through it or something like that pushing through the frame yeah Yeah, right something like that sort
1: sort of sort of breaking that wall yeah you know it'd be really cool and i it costs extra money to do this so (laughs) there's and so they probably wouldn't spend the money to do this but having a gatefold page for that. Oh, totally. uh, yeah, so yeah, it's yeah. like the page is folded over and then so you it's like and so she's interacting with the gatefold and you open it up and it, it reveals you know more pe- the passageway or whatever. I think that would be kind of cool. That
0: would that. be awesome actually. Yeah. That would be pretty great but yeah I can also see that that's <laughs> that's somebody in the uh, decision making process to go like ah uh, we'll just, just draw just... it. We
2: have a script <laughs> just stick to the script.
1: <laughs> so Now you say they have limited number of panels, but really the case is that they could squeeze in 20 panels in one page if they really wanted to. There's nothing. There's there's no rules against that. But um, I I didn't notice. I didn't note earlier that the artist for this comic is John Buscema, and he is like a huge name in comics. Um, And so to have him on board doing the storytelling is actually uh, it's actually a big deal because he is an excellent storyteller. So. If he, I'm going to trust his judgment on this. If he didn't want to do it, then he it's probably because there's a, he couldn't figure out a good way to convey that. Sure,
2: sure. Um, I mean, we're also, again, going on 30 years hindsight, so there's that too. Yeah.
1: He actually sticks to a very rigid six panel uh, layout per page. Sometimes he has more panels, but for the most part, there are, it's a three tier six panel setup for almost every page.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I don't know. He's uh, he is playing it a little safe. <laughs> Doug, do you want to take us through issue number two?
0: Yeah, issue number two goes from uh, that uh, that puzzle by the door, and which, in which uh, Sarah falls down uh, through the helping hands, and uh, Hoggle is confronted by uh, the Goblin King, and uh, yeah, it goes. Oh yeah, there's you know yeah basically it's just like her meeting a bunch of people and just going journeying through the labyrinth. This this is kind of the second act of everything where she's meeting her new friends that the, the big uh, what is this character Ludo called? Ludo yeah the big the big uh, the, the not Chewbacca <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, I guess it takes us all the way until she's oh yeah until she's in the forest with those uh, those fiery uh, head removing creatures.
2: Yeah, I don't. I don't even remember if it actually properly name drops those guys. To be honest, I, don't, I, don't, I might have missed it though. Yeah, the, actually, to be honest, this is a recurring thing um, where sometimes they gloss over some of the details. Like to be honest, like the names, like just really, really quickly, or maybe a little later than you would than you would suspect.
1: Actually, they do say the name. Um, one of them says, "Yeah, have fun with us, fireys."
2: Uh, okay, Fieries,
0: All right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah, so um, it's, it, this is basically uh, the whole issue of her exploring the labyrinth and meeting meeting uh, friends and not-so-friends uh, along the way.
1: Yeah, they, they sort of gloss over a few things that don't translate as well, like the helping hands. Oh, the helping hands, yeah, I noticed that. They didn't even bother scenes with the faces in the, the, movie. Faces
0: and the hands. Nope, and that was like that Not was the all. cool part of it. That was that was like why you that was the whole reason that whole thing was there in the movie was to have this very this sort of visual, this visual element of of just hands turning into faces and and kind of playing with that that side of our brain that always turns everything into a face. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that I, and so like that is that was a wasted opportunity because it's it's it doesn't it doesn't even try. It just has word bubbles by hands and then they then then they just basically go through the same motions of the conversation in the movie
1: it's i can understand because one of the worst things to draw is hands (laughs) just just doing normal things is terrible i can't even imagine contorting fingers and hands to make them look like they're making making faces (laughs) It'd be awful.
0: <laughs> it would be. A, it would be a lot of work. Yeah, he's like, he's like, oh man, I got a deadline to meet. I can't do this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. Um, we haven't really spoken about Gobble. Um, I I find that oh, John you mean Buscema... uh, you mean
2: Hogwarts? <laughs> 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 yeah, yes, that's I noticed true. that. <laughs>
1: um, I he, he really, I feel like uh, John Busema really captured. The likeness of the of the puppet Mm. in this one he looks great
0: yes and I I find that this um, there is a lot of emphasis on this character um, through the whole I guess through all three issues actually Um, I think I think that that's one of the things they really honed in on was the uh, was the relationship between hoggle and Sarah here
1: yeah this issue this yeah this part two in particular is really about how hoggle and Sarah um, connect and grow and become friends, I guess.
2: Although uh, although I will admit truthfully, I started to wonder why she kept on accepting him back. Like he like she even calls him out every single time. She's like, you're a coward, you're a backstabber, you cheat. Oh, well come on, let's go. <laughs> uh it, it happens at least at least uh three times where um where she's like, I can't believe you betrayed me. Okay, come on, let's go. <laughs> uh, and uh, I, I mean, yeah, um, I, I feel a de- I, at least I feel a degree of sympathy for him. There, the expressions on his face—you can at least get get from that that he's he is under duress, and and certainly he he's the first one to admit that he's under duress. But uh, I mean, I guess ultimately it comes down to she doesn't have a lot of support uh, and a lot of friends in the, in, the, in the labyrinth. Um, so and I guess pick your friends where you can.
1: Yeah, if it's a choice between going, traveling through this really weird unknown land by yourself or with someone who seems remotely kind of okay, then probably you wouldn't want to do it alone. She she has no problem ditching him once she has Ludo.
2: Yes, true. Mm-hmm. Very true. Yeah, um, I also start at this point to kind of, this is weird, but I, I kind of miss the musical aspect of it. You know mm-hmm. truthfully, I, I really, <laughs> like um, the music and the songs um, um, for better or for worse, really contributes to the atmosphere of labyrinth. Yeah,
1: um,
2: and uh, even even some of the shots, the movie where she's just running down the labyrinth as, as short as they are, um, at, at help with with uh, feeling that time is passing. And um, I'm not getting as much a sense of that. Here it's and it does seem like there's a time crunch but I wonder if it would have been better if they said if if had said look I'm going to turn this baby into a goblin you got 2 hours to get to my castle then you know um I mean although differing from the movie that would really amp it up in the comic it would have been like oh oh shoot you know we got to hoof it i got to keep going on cuz i mean i'm down to like an hour 30 now at this point <laughs> yeah There definitely was a a distinct lack of dance, magic dance in this
0: one. Uh, And and I I think it's around here in the movie, like somewhere in volume two where he goes to the big song number and and, and, you know, like, yeah, not all the songs in Labyrinth are great, but that one definitely is great. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And, and yeah, it is one of those things that's just like, oh man, like, uh, yeah, when you're missing something, I, I don't know, that's so iconic. Mm. It, it, it's. I mean, obviously, you know, you can't adapt it. There's no. There's, there's no way. It would be super awkward for them to, for them to, to draw David Bowie dancing around <laughs> with his very distinct, uncomfortably pronounced package,
1: <laughs> um,
0: and just and just like little musical notes that go dance magic dance. So like it's, it's something they can't do. But yeah. it, but at the same time, yeah, it it is that is what something that lends to the pacing of the film and 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 was sort of this nice like crucial uh centerpiece to it all I think.
2: You, you know, it's kind of ironic because here I am there's, there's there's parts I'm just wishing they didn't stick to the movie. You know, and I'm I'm lamenting. it's just, it's just like ah oh, you don't have to stick strictly to the movie. But in my head I'm just like but it's got to be a musical. <laughs> <laughs> you know.
1: <laughs> well the thing that that musical number does is it introduces us to his castle, yeah, and all of the different goblins. So it, t- by taking that out, we don't actually see inside Jareth's castle at all in this adaptation until the very end. Yeah,
2: and, too, y- yeah. and you know, truthfully as well, it also kind of establishes that you know what Toby's like at that point. Um, I mean, like again, we've barely glossed over what's going on with Toby and, and the actual the actual peril that he's in, and he's actually seeming to kind of you know kind of be okay with it. You know, like kind of hinting that you know, maybe maybe he's already starting to warm up to the goblin life. And
1: well, you mean in the in the movie? In the movie, yeah. Well, no. He, well, he's crying during that scene, isn't he? He's like frightened of all the of all of the goblins that are. He around, is crying. It? Yeah. Is it that
0: one? Yeah, I think I think so. Um, and is he, is, isn't Boy like tossing him up in the air? Okay, and, I must be
2: thinking of later then.
0: Okay, yeah, I don't
1: know. Yeah, it's not till like uh, when we get to the scene with the stairs and stuff where he's. Like just kind of happy and crawling all over the place that's right That's right. Around. <laughs> yeah this one also kind of takes the entire movie pretty much beat by beat as well um, there's not a whole lot of stuff that's different about it it's this is a very alice in wonderland story very much so well that satisfies me if you guys want to move on to <laughs> yeah the sure sure well steve why don't you do this one for us
2: sure uh, well, first off, let me just say, best cover art <laughs> of the three. Yes. of the three, yes. for sure.
1: Love it, hands down, great. By it's by artist Tom Palmer. If anyone's interested, yeah, it's really good.
2: Well, he earned his paycheck. Mm-hmm. Um, so at this point, the Fiery's go from just wanting to like dance with her to like suddenly wanting to uh, wanting to remove her head. <laughs> but Hoggle comes through and he says, "Hey, you know what? We're friends again." Don't kiss me. Well, if you want to, that's okay. And they they wind up down in that uh, the bog of eternal stench, mm-hmm. which is different from the swamp of sadness. Uh, very, yeah, mm-hmm. although I think uh, I think Artax would also not be happy here as well. Probably not. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, although truthfully, for a bog of eternal stench, uh, they just same seem, seem to say, "Ew, it stinks." Um, <laughs> Ludo manages to save them, and they work their way over to the bridge. And there's uh, Sir Didymus who uh, is guarding that bridge because people without permission aren't allowed to pass. There's a bit of a fight. The bridge breaks a little, but they say, hey, can we just ask for permission? and He says, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you can ask. they do and they, they can cross. So he joins them on their on their merry little adventure. but once again Hoggle is tempted by by Jareth who says, hey, give her this, this poisonous dream fruit, which he does uh, and she enters that little that little dream a little dreamscape uh, dance ballroom dance. Um, which truthfully has a bit of a creepy vibe. G- yeah. yeah.
1: Nowadays, we look at that a lot differently.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was I was kind of willing to, to go a little more with the film. Um, but this is, this is just like, yikes. Okay, anyways. Uh, she winds up in kind of like a little trash land uh, and then awakens in her room, but it's not actually her room. It's still in the trash land. And... Uh, her friends rescue her. Hoggle comes through again, and he's accepted back back into the click And they go on and they rescue the baby. Uh, and uh, Sarah says, "Hey, look, I gotta face Jareth alone." And instead of you know, there's the, the Firefly ending where she where she could have said, "Actually, no, I don't," and they could have helped, but oh well. And she realizes that uh, she realizes that she ha- she's the one with the power. Jareth shrinks on up, she appears blip, back in the home, and Toby's safe and sound, but uh, she realizes that whenever she needs her friends, they'll come through and back into the real world for all nice and tatty.
1: Now this is the issue that differs the most from the movie.
2: Yeah, it's too bad there's, we're, the M.C. uh, Escher-inspired stair Atrium is reduced to like a panel. Uh, Yeah. Which is which is too bad because I feel like in the graphic novel, you could do way more than you can on film, like, like just like just like just like throw physics to the wind and go nuts. You can you can do that on page, um, but no, he's just kind of resting up against the wall. He's just like check out this room, and she's like give me the baby. He's like uh
1: eh, no. They're not even standing on different planes. Like he's he's still face he's still upright. I guess yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, I think at this point, and this you'll probably find this in a lot of adaptations, that you get to the very end and they're like, oh crap, we're out of room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we gotta cut something. And fortunately, a lot of third acts is a lot of filler anyway, because it's like a huge fight scene or something like that that you can reduce to. Mm-hmm. To, to, You know, you, it's like you don't want to skimp on the character develop it, development at the beginning, but you can skimp on some of the big, drawn-out action sequences at the end. But this is shame because this is Sarah's defining moment right here. She's willing to sacrifice herself in order to save her baby brother Mm -hmm. when she makes that huge leap to try and save him. And she doesn't do that in this comic.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah, you know, I have to admit that this this particular issue was um the weakest of the three in my opinion because it rushed through all that stuff and especially right near the end in that uh, sort of final confrontation with jareth uh, because um because yeah she, she the the stuff in the in that stairwell doesn't happen and and i don't even know how she came to the realization where she's like you have no control over me like i just didn't really see the logical connection that she made to even come to that it seemed yeah, all, right. all very. It seemed all very just like they had to go through the motions for her to say certain lines for, for her for it to get to the
2: end. And I'm a little confused about this rug that just kind of appears and swallows Jareth. Or He's it was, like, it's a rug, oh, isn't it? Or is I, it... I, I, thought, well, I thought it was like his cape or something. Or where's his cape though? No, actually, yeah. no. I, maybe not. I'm not even seeing a cape. Actually, yeah. Now I'm confused about it too. <laughs> it's just this rug that comes up and swallows him. And he's like Sarah, and then I guess he's he's the embodiment of the. At least the movie seems to imply that he was he was the owl. But then this bird yeah. just flies by and and drops uh, drops the kid off and drops them you know pops them back. I guess yeah. So I think that if I were to have read this
0: and not have seen the movie, I don't think it would have made any sense. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I would have been really confused, be like, oh, I guess I, I guess they're home now, and it's it's over somehow what happened to jareth i don't know yeah like i like i really had a lot of um yeah i wasn't able to make a lot of sense of of the ending really to be honest the 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 final showdown which is kind of a kind of a shame not that it makes like loads of sense in the movie but i (laughs) like but like i was at least able to follow it Mm -hmm. yeah
1: yeah it's too bad that uh that they had to reduce it but you know i think it's the nature of these type of movies where like the whole thing is a dream anyway like, how do you just get out of that you remember alice in wonderland the disney version is like let's just create a like a some sort of vortex that sucks her back into reality <laughs> and yeah, there you that's go true. that's that's better so
0: i mean that's the thing is that when you're dealing with such surreal things i mean it, it is hard to like translate it I mean, it it's hard enough like for them to make it into the into the movie in the first place. And even then like I would say it's not 100% successful, but it was it was successful enough that people bought it and and liked it. Um, but yeah, they, there's a few motions that maybe they could have skipped over maybe to to be able to expand the ending because I mean in the movie, I never was never particularly fond of of her going in that sort of weird dream sequence and dancing with him, and then her going into like the junkyard with the because with the, with her bedroom and stuff like that because yeah. ultimately, like it was just sort of her being pulled out of the action to go through. I don't know, I guess, she, I guess there was a sort of supposed to be an element of, of her choice of like, you, you could have this comfortable life that's a lie, or you can continue confronting things, but it was just sort of like she was in the action, she got pulled out of it and then she just got pulled back into it just sort of, uh, just as easy as that too, and so I I mean, maybe they just could have cut that whole thing out of the comic and been able to expand more on the stuff with, stuff at the end
2: yeah, certainly, certainly with the dance, uh, the dance sequence because there's, um I feel like that one was very reliant on. I'm going to drop the, the music again. Uh, very reliant on, on the music and the atmosphere of it being, you know, a, a ballroom scene, and and him seducing her, um, and that really kind of linked with this the, the theme uh, of you know approaching adulthood. And stuff a little very tangibly in the context of the movie. I think you could probably drop that in the comic because it's so, it's short and you're not really sure why it's happened, anyways. And then you maybe could have expanded the bedroom scene, but have it so that she's she's actively rejecting the lie, like like she's yeah. she's she's very she's very tempted to to stay back in in what she's perceiving as reality but then she she overcomes and and fights and says no 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 you know and really pushes back against it because having both i think did a did no service to either but focusing on on one in the comic i think would have would have been good and it probably should have been the latter one and because you just can't get bowie's seduction eyes through the comic you (laughs) need to see them in person for them to work She's a teenager though, Uh, so again, (laughs) still a little bit like, "Eh." Uh, still a little, uh, but, uh, but, but uh, I mean, at at least truthfully though, um, at least truthfully, there seemed to be, there was a tenderness and a a connection um, that didn't necessarily have to be have to be sexual. It could there could be a degree of paternity to it. There could be a degree of protectiveness to it. There was a little more open to open to interpretation. But when you've got only like what six panels for this ballroom scene, and one of them is her saying is her you know saying, uh, no no you mustn't sort of thing. It it just doesn't jive as well. You know what I mean? Yeah.
1: It's true. Yep. Absolutely. I think by also taking out that last scene uh, with the with the all of the stairs and stuff. We never get a sense that Toby is really in any sort of danger in this comic adaptation. Mm. I mean, I know that Sarah never sees Toby. So if we, if we are just watching, like going through this comic in Sarah's point of view and we don't see Toby, then I guess we're in the same boat as her. But in the movie, we get to see Toby surrounded by all of these monster creatures. Um, and Jareth himself is holding toby a lot and this guy is a guy that's kind of frightening and we don't know what he's going to do so just the fact that he has the baby in his clutches is kind of like it's unnerving and then the whole thing with the stairs like the baby is going to fall down the holes or whatever um you just i just find toby to be a non-character in this adaptation
2: Mm -hmm. when when in reality i guess he should be the anchor he should be the thing that uh, that keeps her keeps her grounded and keeps her pursuing reality and keeps her pursuing. Right. Yeah,
1: yeah. And by taking him out, it seems like her drive to meet Jareth is the anchor instead. Mm-hmm. Like there's some sort of force that's pulling her to them together or something like that. Maybe that's what the dream sequence is getting at too. I don't know.
0: Um, but I guess the the very very final bit of uh, of her ending up at home and. Uh, and all of her friends appearing is uh, is more or less the same as the movie.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, yeah, I mean, basically a, ends on the, on basically the it same was, note. It
0: was all very fast in the film as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they, she, they they got they give it a good page. <laughs> <laughs> it's all, all really needed. <laughs> yeah.
1: One of the things that I was really actually surprised that when Milo, my son, was watching it, and we got to the part with the fireys, he said, "Hey." Those one of those guys was a, a stuffed a stuffy in her bedroom at the very beginning. And oh, he picked up on it. He, he picked, picked up, up on up. it first viewing. Like I didn't, I didn't pick up on that. It wasn't until the second time I saw that when I, you know, have hindsight now and looking at the that panning shot at the very beginning of the movie when you realize that there's so many elements of this goblin world in her bedroom that you know this is all all she's pulling all of this stuff in in the movie, into her dreams from reality. Um, but he picked up on that right away. And they don't have that shot uh, in this adaptation at all, which I can understand why, but it definitely makes it less like this is her own dream world that she's created and retreating inside.
0: Mm-hmm. I did leave it pretty ambiguous in the film, whether it was a dream world or if it was if it was something that was Absolutely. more t- tangible, yep, you're right. which, which I think was... Important, but yeah, definitely like little details like that lend a little more um, credibility to it, just being kind of in her imagination, um, or or maybe it is, yeah, maybe maybe the world is created from elements of her of her reality and because of her imagination. I mean, it, it never says, and, and and nor do I think even the filmmakers were had a firm conclusion on that one, probably,
2: because mm-hmm. I think they they liked the idea of it being ambiguous. I don't know if either of you guys have seen Mirror Mask, which was another Henson production, but came out, uh, oh, like 15 years ago. I was, it was uh, much later.
0: It was after Jim Henson passed away. I yeah. Had, but, uh, I, th- I think it was like the early
1: 2000s. Yeah. That's the one with Neil Gaiman involved in that too, right?
2: Yeah. Um, I mean, it was, it did follow a lot of the similar themes and elements to Labyrinth in a lot of ways. Um, although I will say, though, that. I actually felt they kind of explored that theme a little a little better that this uh you know is because uh, near the end there's an uh, a mirror version of her that then takes her place in the real world and then there's the question of oh well hold on maybe this is a real thing or maybe this is her allowing uh, a darker side of her to to kind of come out and be rambunctious that she never allowed herself to explore before um, and I thought that, that was a, a very fascinating uh, avenue. That um, that truthfully, labyrinth the way the movie is structured couldn't go down, but would have been fascinating.
1: Yeah.
0: Hmm. Yeah. I haven't seen *Mirror Mask* in ages. So I, I,
2: I will be honest. It's it's not a great film. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's uh, it's it's only at times does it remind you that it's a Henson film. Um, but other times it's just okay.
0: <laughs> I did remember kind of it was it, it was very imaginative, but uh, I think it was also a little bit, well, I, I, a little confusing at times. But anyway, I guess we're not here to talk about that one. <laughs> so yeah,
1: I find that any any movies any Henson movies that come out after Jim Henson. Uh, they feel like, the the creators are going what would Jim Henson do in mm. this and kind of making it their best guess? Mm-hmm. Because if you, if it, just the feel of Labyrinth, the Dark Crystal, the Storyteller TV show, it all has such a very specific feel that was straight out of Jim's head. And you can't capture that same thing. Like they've tried. I, mean, I haven't seen Mirror Mask, but I get the feeling from what you say that it was kind of one of those situations.
2: Very much
0: so. Yeah. Yeah, you know, but it, it, I'm glad that these uh, I'm glad that Jim Henson got to make these films that weren't like just like Muppet films. Like they were, they obviously used the same puppetry tricks, and in some in some cases more more advanced puppetry trick, uh, tricks. But um, but it was really cool being able to see that sort of that different side of him because, like yourself, Curtis, I I watched the Muppets as a kid all the time, but I didn't see again i didn't see labyrinth until i was older and so it's cool to see like oh he had he had a really cool like darker imaginative side that that was uh that came out only sometimes like only when he after like a a little more uh deliberation you know Yeah. yeah
1: have you seen the storytellers tv show i have not i haven't either truthfully Oh man, you got to track that down. Yeah. It is just it's, some fantastic a, stuff. Do you know if
2: it's available for for purchase uh, on DVD yeah. or
1: it has been released on DVD that was some time ago so I have no idea if it's still in print, but mm. I will lend you my copy if I next time I see it cuz it's it's just so so good. Oh okay. And if you if you are a fan of Labyrinth or Dark Crystal then this is right up your alley. Oh, fantastic. Yeah.
2: Fantastic. Yeah.
1: Cool. Um and for comic fans, if you want to dive further into the Labyrinth universe, over the years there have been um, a number of different comics that have expanded the Labyrinth world. There is a sequel called Return to Labyrinth that was published by Tokyopop. It's a manga company, so it's a manga sequel. And then there's another studio called, or another comic company called Archaea Studios, and they have done a series of graphic novel prequels that kind of you learn more about Jareth and that kind of stuff. I haven't read all of them, um, but they're they're pretty good they're they're a lot of fun. Mm. yeah, not Marvel though, so we won't be covering them <laughs> on this podcast.
0: fair enough.
2: do you know yeah. if if Marvel still has the rights to um actually, I guess it does uh, now that it's owned by Disney right uh, to to uh, do the license works for uh, for anything handsome?
1: Um, that is a good question. No, Henson, it's kind of funny because Henson is its own company, Mm -hmm. but they, I, and I, I don't know what the relationship exactly is with Disney because Disney, I believe does own the Muppets, but if Henson goes and does their own thing, Mm -hmm. then they own their own thing. Oh, interesting. It was distributed by Tristar when it originally came out. Right. But as far as the comic rights go, um, Labyrinth, the comic has been licensed to Archaea Studios and they still have the license. Hmm. So I don't think they that Marvel can do any new Labyrinth comics hmm. at this time. So yeah, I don't know what the situation is with that. It's very interesting. And when it came out on DVD... Who put that one out? I don't even remember which company. Put you see, that
2: out. I bought a uh, when I bought it on DVD a few years ago. It was a uh, three pack. It was Labyrinth, Dark Crystal, and Mirror Mask. It was the three together. Um, but I'm trying to remember who who that who that was actually. I think it's by Sony, which would make sense if it was a uh, TriStar. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yep. Sony. Yep. You're right. Oh, yeah. Now. Yeah. know. I see
2: it as well. Yeah. No, this was the collection that I had.
1: But that was the most recent. The Blu-ray was released in 2009. Um, and that's well after Jim Henson's the the acquisition, uh, the Muppet acquisition. So I don't know what the situation is with Labyrinth.
2: Maybe they don't even know. Truthfully, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. uh, sometimes they hope for the best, and then there's a couple lawsuits, and oh. then you know <laughs> some settlements.
1: Well, Sony must know if they release the Blu-ray.
2: Yeah, true, true enough, actually.
1: Yeah, and in fact, there is a 4K version that was released in 2016. From Sony.
2: Okay, so it's probably still sitting with Sony then.
1: Yep, yep. Okay, well, you know, this has been a great conversation. I, I one last thing is that the only difference between the the three issue miniseries and the the large large format, uh, you know, single volume from Marvel Super Special, other than the coloring, is that there is a new splash page introduced at the beginning of issue number two and three of the miniseries because comics always have to start with a splash page (laughs) of course so they're throwaway. there's no new content it's uh totally just a a filler piece but it looks cool so there you have it we did it our first episode yeah so I didn't I didn't mention this at the beginning of the episode but I'm not going to join Doug and Steve for these episodes I'm gonna let them run with it and uh, and go I'll come back for some guest appearances here and there um But uh, for the most part, this is going to be Doug and Steve's segment, and I'll leave it up to them.
0: Yeah,
2: good luck, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Well, you know, we were talking about it earlier. How do you feel about doing next time doing Sam Raimi's first Spider-Man? oh uh, uh yeah i don't know if i have my copy anymore it's probably not, but yeah we could dig it up yeah okay <laughs> yeah because i mean i remember having quite a few opinions about that <laughs> <laughs> sure i'm game
1: that sounds great i think that's a great idea i will uh be i'll have to dig up my copy as well and reread it in anticipation of it
2: yeah and my uh my son has not seen the Raimi trilogy uh and so uh so i'm very curious to see what he thinks uh, we just finished yeah. all, all. We just finished all the X Men movies ex- except for Logan. He's not old enough to watch Logan. Uh, yeah, but, uh, I'm, I'm curious. I'm curious what he will think of, think about that. Uh, so I might even get some input from him with you know fresh eyes looking back now sure, almost Logan, twenty yeah. years later. Now that he's seen so many superhero
0: movies, yeah, is this one going to have the kind of any level of impact on him compared to like what it had on us?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also, well, I'm I'm yeah. kind of curious, rereading the adaptation, if uh, if if my opinion uh, opinions on it uh, will have changed at all, or maybe I'm remembering things a little differently than I'm, how they are. Yeah, we I we'll see. Yeah.
1: Okay. <laughs> well, we look forward to it. Uh, thanks, guys, for for uh, kicking off this episode with us. And thank you, all you listeners. Um, you can. F- follow us on uh on Facebook and on Instagram you can join my epic collection Facebook group if you want to talk more about epic collections and uh Steve and doug do you have uh, social media that people can follow you with? Ed? We
2: do. We uh we also uh we co-host uh and release a podcast called the Music A to Z podcast. And so sometimes we were not dabbling in movies and uh and literature, we are dabbling in music as well. Um, yeah, and you can find that at music dot com or on iTunes or Stitcher, however you like to get your podcast going. Mm-hmm. And Doug d- dives deep into uh, into uh, into Transformers lore. Oh yeah, I have uh, I have a YouTube show called Beast
0: Wars Wednesday, um, in which uh, we review every episode of the uh, the '90s show Beast Wars, the, tra- the 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 show that resurrected Transformers. Um, and we're in season three, so we're near the end. So there's plenty to catch up on, <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, it's been it's been it's been a, a hoot. Mm-hmm. I'm loving it.
1: Yeah, those episodes are fun. Perfect. Well, I think it's time to sign off here. Thanks, everybody, and we will see you next time.
2: Have a good night. See you later.